Welcome to the Bova News Podcast. I'm Mike Opperman, and I'll be your host today. You know, whenever we talk about milk prices, it seems like they're always on a roller coaster. Far back as I can remember, milk prices have been up and then they've been down. And certainly that's been the case over the past 12 months with what we've had to deal with, with COVID and supply issues and basically anything that impacts the prices that people get on their dairy. So today we're going to take a look at where we're at with milk prices um, and what the future looks like in, in the near term and some of the factors that got us to where we are today. Joining me on the podcast today is Mike North, who is a principal with Ever Ag. Mike began his work in the futures industry in 1995 and founded Commodity Risk Management Group in 2014. Today, his team of brokers and advisors lead production and processing clients to construct marketing and manage margin management programs. The Commodity Risk Management Group combined with Rice Dairy in 2019 to form Ever Ag. Welcome, Mike. Good to be joining you, Mike. As I said in the introduction, you know, milk prices have been up and down, uh, it seems like forever. Um, but could you kind of give us a, a level set uh, update on where we're at today and how we got to where we are? Absolutely. And I, I think we'd uh, be a bit remiss to not talk about why we are so up and down. You know, the thing about this particular commodity of milk uh, is that it's so much more perishable than many of the other commodities that we watch. And the thing to understand is that whenever demand or supply shifts, even fractionally, because of its perishability, it has massive and very immediate implications on price. So when we talk about the current landscape, you really have this perfect tug of war at play right now. You've got all of these cows producing all of this milk at record levels. And at the same time, we're watching as government intervention steps in periodically to prop up demand uh, for different products. Um, We have this uh, discussion of when will the economy get back to quote unquote normal? When will people be comfortable and confident to go back out into the, to the restaurants and, and order what they have in the pre-COVID days? When will we see uh, a uh, supply chain that's moving in the same way and with the same fluidity that we did pre-COVID? You know, there's lots of opportunities for exports we're a low price point relative to world markets, but can we actually ship it? Is there containers to put it in? Will the, you know, the, the freight liners actually make their way to the port so we can load them? You know, lots of questions at play right now. And it's, it's really created this, you know, very difficult, very frustrating, uh, but incredibly massive tug of war in the market that kind of leaves us vulnerable to a lot of this up and down um, even in the short run while we're trying to answer these questions. So you mentioned COVID and certainly that's been front and center for a long time. And it feels like in lots of part, many parts of the country that some restrictions are starting to, to loosen up and people are going to restaurants and food services opening up. And then you also mentioned just kind of this rampant production scale that we're on. Are we going to be able to soak up all of this extra production or are we going to see a price drop here in the next six months or so? 
Well, certainly the big thing the market is watching, and I think this can be said more broadly about almost everything in society, is this return back to normal, if you will, if there is such a thing, if, if, there, if that path even exists. The reality of that is it, it's hard to measure. The, the real element that's trying to be measured is confidence, consumer confidence, and they're willing to go out and engage in you know, consumer practices that they had previously. But the only real metric that we have to follow right now outside of you know, consumer sales and spending and things of that nature is vaccinations. And that's why you hear so much of that of late. It's why that has become the focal point. In order to really achieve the confidence, it's believed that we have to get beyond this you know, level of herd immunity and everybody's got their own numbers. You know, Commonly, we hear if we get to 70% vaccinated, we've achieved it. Um, but there too, even if you achieve the number, is everyone still comfortable engaging? And so we are, you know, watching every little number that, you know, begins to show us or leads, leads to a, a fuller picture of what that demand uh, looks like. And we see it growing, but it's slow. And I think slower than most people would like. Um, but the opportunity for us on demand you know, going back to your question, really kind of plays out, I believe, on the export side. The United States and the EU have been a little bit more impacted by COVID than some of the more prominent, you know, Asian markets, Japan, Vietnam, Korea, China, of course, uh, being the headliner in that group. Um, these markets are red hot right now, and they're buying everything they can get their hands on. And so when we talk about this price opportunity that we have, we really believe that one of the biggest paths forward to helping reduce some of these you know, massive inventories that we've grown over the last year is going to come by way of exports. But the challenge with that, of course, is the, the ability for us to actually move the product. You know, you see the stories all over of backed up ports and, 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 and ships not able to come in and load and you know, ships that are actually getting turned around and sent back to Asia before they're loaded because of, you know, the cost of freight and the value of some of the goods being shipped out of China. It's, it's cheaper for them, hard to believe, but cheaper for them to send an empty vessel back with containers and then reload it and send it back to our ports than it is for them to wait for it to load. You know, that it seems crazy, but it's happening you know, those things we're going to have to resolve. We're going to have to get ahead of that. And, um, you know, that, that export market, though, I believe is a real big opportunity for us. And it's part of what's helped prop up things like whey values and uh, non-fat and skim milk powders. If you look at where they're trading today, they've been well supported by this, by this global marketplace. Um, but, you know, we have certainly an ample supply of, of cows in our inventory too. You mentioned, you mentioned the herd size. There is no ignoring the fact that we have the largest herd since mid 1990s. You know, I got in the business in 1995 and I look around and we have the same size herd as we did back then. But the thing about today's herd is that we're not producing an average uh, rolling herd average of 65 pounds of cow a day. 
you know, were, were much higher, you know, guys have gotten better with, you know, managing cows and, and, and producing milk. And so we have a, this massive, massive milk production kind of sitting in the backdrop. Um, and if we don't resolve some of these demand issues, that's what catches up with us. Because in the end, when you send a signal to the market that says we need more milk, dairy farmers do not disappoint. They always come back with more than we ask for. And so, um, you know, that will be hanging in the backdrop and really be kind of the wet blanket over this market as we work our way through these demand stories. And then a couple of things on the supply side, you know, if we go back to a year ago to where we are or to where we were, um, you know, when, when folks stopped going to restaurants and food service shut down, that really, um, filled up our pipeline really quickly. And then that kind of got resolved. How are we are, how are we now in terms of, you know, filling that pipeline to food service and so forth? Are, are warehouses full? Are, are folks not looking for additional product or is that not an issue? So we are seeing an uptick in orders. That has been one of those watch points that is encouraging. There are food service institutions that are moving back into the space and ordering up a little bit more product. And the thing about it is, you know, a lot of them went in more of a hand to mouth type of fashion. We're starting to see some of those orders stretch out a little further into the calendar. And that's really what's most encouraging because that expresses their confidence, not just in meeting their current need, but in the fact that they're going to have an ongoing demand that creates a greater need looking into the future. That's really, you know, encouraging for us in that regard, but not all states are equal. Not all populations around the country are seeing the same type of movement. Obviously, uh, as you look at the more rural parts of the country, I don't know that they slowed mm -hmm. down in some places, right? right? In some places they just kept moving forward despite what we saw in more urban environments. Uh, but the magnitude of demand comes in the urban environment. The people that consume the most are, are, are in our more populated uh, cities. And so how those uh, move ahead is, is going to be important. And that's really where, again, we fall back on this vaccination discussion, you know, carry whatever belief you will, if that is the one thing that people need for their own sake to confidently step forward, then, then, then that's the pathway we need to go down. Right. Um, you know, reality for us right now is that we're, 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 we're very, very slow in, I would say the Eastern part of the country uh, to, to, to get people back out into the open and to uh, fully bring them back online, if you will. The Western part of the country is making a little greater strides in that regard. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But that, you know, you've nailed it here. I mean, really, as, as we talk about demand, moving people back into restaurants, moving people more confidently back into their old habits, their old lifestyle, if they can get there. And that's the other part is, have we so disrupt, dis, disrupted uh, the cultural norms that they, they, we can't get back to normal? Um, that remains unseen, but there's certainly a lot of pent up demand. You know, if you watch airline stocks, you know, they've been finding a little bit more uh, of a bid in, 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 their, in their values because 
there is a lot of uh, increased demand to travel. And, you know, that's the other part of this, you know, part of the eat away from home uh, discussion is, you know, leaving your home and traveling and going out into places where you have to eat out. Right. And so um, we're, we're getting right. there. Uh, we, we do see some optimism in that. Well, way. and you also see a lot of investment in the e-groceries, right? Something like StubHub and, or not Stub, Grubhub and, and things like that. So you wonder how that uh, will change the dynamic of how people are going out to eat and so forth. Because, you know, that if you're eating, if you're, if you're ordering Grubhub, you know, you're not ordering a gallon of milk or a, or a carton of ice cream, you know. So that, how does that affect dairy purchases too? So... Um, I also wanted to make a comment too on the supply side. You know, I read recently that as we continue to have more and more uh, milk produced and so forth, that uh, although we don't have an official supply management system here in the U.S., that processors will start to encourage, for the lack of a better term, producers to reduce production. You see that on the on the horizon. Well, that's something that really hasn't left us since COVID began there are still in play several quotas instituted by different co-ops and processors. And I don't know that we're fully going to go away from that, but I will say this, the institution of quotas right now is likely more so a byproduct of the fact that we haven't returned to normal. If we can get flow like we had it previously, there won't be as much need for quota. And if we understand the basis of it, you know, the quota really is there to make sure that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. There's a lot of different processors and co-ops saying, hey, if we don't have the demand for the milk on the backside, if there's no consumer, end user, processor, you know, whatever their situation looks like, that's willing to pick my milk up at full value, then how can we as an institution continue to encourage the same levels of production that we had pre-COVID? And I think because of uh, this lack of normal flow, we still see quotas in play. Uh, going forward, I think we're going to have less and less use of quota and then only when we need sure. it. Right now, it's become a staple in the in the process. But as we go forward and get back into again, we use this norm word normal. Uh, as we get back into a normal flow, there won't be as much need to institute quota because remember, over time, we grow the milk production yearly by about one point four percent, and that matches very closely to the increased demand that we see, and you know, what could be good for us, you know, because again, uh, our low price point in world markets is that we grow our demand base around the world. And then maybe we can, you know, ultimately scale up more production and still be in balance with that demand. And there too, uh, get rid of some of this quota discussion. But for the moment, I think it's just part of our experience because of, you know, the coattails of the COVID experience still at, at play here in our marketplace. Right. So switch gears a little bit and let's talk a little bit about um, the new, new administration and policy and so forth. So we talked a lot about exports. Uh, the person that led the Dairy Export Council was Secretary Vilsack. He's back at USDA again. 
What do you see, uh, you know, now that we are two months into a new administration, you know, what do you see in terms of dairy policy coming down the pike that producers should be aware of? Well, Vilsack with his uh, role in US DEC ultimately had a very pro-export stance and spent a lot of time and resources moving into markets to establish relationships, trade flows, you know, building those channels up so that we could broaden our base going forward. I, I think, you know, one of the things to be watching is how we come back to the trade table. We moved away from that multilateral type of trade environment and favored more of a bilateral approach in the previous administration. Just by what we've watched and, and how this new administration is moving forward, they're kind of ricocheting back to the multilateral approach. I think you're going to see a lot of uh, attempts to sign back on to some of those deals. Now, with us coming a little bit late to the game, I don't know if we're going to get as favored of uh, status in those agreements as we would have previously, but I do see a movement back towards that. Um, you know, our dealings with the Chinese are going to be interesting. Uh, the talks in Alaska last week didn't seem too promising. Right. Um, oh, they, they, they felt a little bit uh, unnerving mm -hmm. in reality that uh, China senses a bit of weakness on our side of the table and is going to throw their weight around a little bit more. So whether or not we'll have as solid of a trading partner there as we had you know, envisioned uh, with a little stronger administration, um, that, that, that ultimately uh, is in question right now. We, we, we certainly don't have all the, the facts yet to be able to make a full determination, but um, that, that, that discussion was a little chilling. And if it's any sort of a foreshadowing of our relationship with them in the coming years, um, it's not one to get super excited about. But let's face it, we've been going after a lot of uh, new trading partners outside of China. And, and that's where having Vilsack at the helm um, is encouraging because he spent a lot of time in places like Vietnam. They put a lot of effort into, you know, Korea and Indonesia and the Philippines and, you know, all of these different areas that are, are coming back online um, hold some promise for us. Um, so, you know, I think Vilsack will be helpful for the dairy industry because of his prior role, more so than he was maybe under the Obama administration where he had less introduction to dairy. Uh, but, I, but I think that fares well for us as we go forward. And I, I think the other thing to watch out of the new administration is going to be this climate policy. How do we address that uh, on dairies, on grain operations? What kind of opportunities are born out of it? What kind of stresses come with it? Um, th there's obviously give and take to that discussion. And so uh, that's going to be a, and they've said so, a big priority for them. And you're seeing a lot of movement in that space already. So how that brings itself back to the dairy, I'm not exactly sure yet. Uh, as a company, we are looking at a lot of different angles as to how that'll impact our clients. Um, there's no absolutes right. yet though. Well, um, just to kind of, take a look at the future now. Um, where do you see prices going and um, can what what do producers need to do to 
protect themselves from from a risk management standpoint? Well, I think it needs to move beyond uh, some of our discussion this morning. We've talked a lot about milk price, but I think you know the the thing that we need to recognize is that we are in an inflationary environment. Period. If you go back to the closest parallel we have to this environment, uh, that being 2009, 2010, we saw massive increases. You know, CPI, uh, you know, grew by double digits as as we moved through that period of time, and it was a byproduct of masses, mass amounts of stimulus dollars moving into the hands of consumers. You know, and as I'm saying this, we're you know seeing checks rolling into mailboxes. Uh, for another round of stimulus. And there's a lot of people getting checks that honestly don't know what to do with the money. Um, but because of that, there's going to be this more robust type of consumerism that chases after product. And when I say that, I'm, I'm talking about all things. And, and, and as we talk about that type of a setup, inflation very quickly comes into the discussion. So you know, while that might be good on the milk side, I think producers need to also be very cognizant of what this means to the feed side of their business. You know, this is a message that we've been shouting from the rooftop since last summer. And frankly, as we look forward, there's still opportunity, not at the best levels that you've ever seen by way of feed prices looking out into 2022, 2023, but relative to the landscape of milk price, there's decent prices. And so we're looking at a lot of different strategies to manage that feed cost ahead of the milk price, and then, you know, work towards healthy margins. And I think that's where you need to be addressing both sides of your business, going after feed cost in, in a very scrupulous manner and, and, and going after uh, milk prices all the same. We've got to you know, look at things like 2022, you know, we're looking at class three prices that are 17 and a half dollars, you know, ask yourself, how many 17 and a half dollar milk checks have you cashed in a class three uh, context over the course of the last 10 years? We saw it in 2014, but that was really the only time. So how are we addressing opportunities like that? And again, relative to feed costs. How are we addressing those markets? So I think, uh, you know, it's an all hands on deck type of strategy right now. You've got to be covering all the bases, but it's time to be really active. And it's a little bit quiet right now. You know, these, these feed markets generally tend to heat up, no pun intended, as we move towards summer. And, you know, as we get into the, to the throes of summer, you know, things could get really, really crazy with as tight as these corn and soybean balance sheets are right now. So really go after it all. I know that's a lot to ask of people immediately, but start digging in, start asking the questions, you know, get together with, uh, you know, groups like ours, ask, you know, what's available, start looking at different strategies, be talking to your banker about, you know, financing on hedges and things like that. It's, it, it's, it's time to mobilize. Well, that's for sure. And uh, certainly there's a lot of factors at play, Mike, as we get into looking at milk prices down the future. So um, is there anything we missed today that we need to talk about that producers need to be aware of in your mind? 
you know, again, um, these are interesting times. I think, you know, to step aside from the very technical elements of the market, the thing that I would say is that uh, in the midst of all of this, don't allow it to over frustrate you. You know, trying to understand markets minute by minute and hour by hour can be a very frustrating, frustrating experience. But markets have a way of adjusting and normalizing and accommodating different stress points. Uh, understand that that's going to happen. But as we talk about maximizing opportunity, this is where, you know, I would say offload some of that stress onto somebody else. You know, don't internalize it so much and make it so much and solely your responsibility, you know, develop a team of people around you that can manage that. Um, you know, I, I, I look at a group like ours and there's certainly others out there, but um, start involving people in the discussion and asking the questions, you know, what can I do? And then, and then let people help, you know, let people get involved. You know, I think that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks for most people in addressing markets is that they feel like it's their job and theirs alone. And just like we bring, you know, veterinarians and nutritionists and agronomists and other specialists into the dairy, this is an area that requires that same thing. So, you know, there are no dumb questions. Everybody starts at zero. Just ask and, and, and someone will be glad to answer. I think that's a great point, Mike. There's there's enough stress that happens on a dairy on a daily basis when you're working with 1,500 pound animals that you don't have to add trying to follow a, such a volatile market on top of that. So, um, Mike, really appreciate your comments today, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, that wraps up our Bova News podcast for today. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow Bova News on your favorite podcast subscription service. And while you're at it, go ahead and follow us on the various social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube page. And be sure to check out our website, bovanews.com, for more information and alerts to upcoming podcasts and webinars. Uh, for that, this has been your host, Mike Opperman, and from everyone at Bova News, have a great day.